I'll open up with a word of prayer. Father, we are again grateful to be gathered together this uh, Lord's Day to worship you first and foremost above all else. Lord, to give you the praise and the adoration that is uh, rightly due to your name because of who you are and the, the perfections of your attributes. Uh, Lord, your holiness and your, your omnipotence and your omnipresence. Lord, there is none like you. Uh, and also for what you've done for us as your people in uh, not only creating us, but then redeeming us and saving us from our sin, reconciling us to yourself through the death of your Son. Uh, Lord, we thank you and give you praise. And Lord, we, we pray that you would help us to love you better, uh, to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that, uh, Lord, that we would not only know what your word says, but we'd be able to articulate that and communicate it as we interact with others, and that you'd help us to be good witnesses to the truth, both both in word and in deed. Uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we've covered some positive arguments for Christianity. Uh, now we're going to be changing to responding to objections to Christianity. But before we do that, I just want to briefly rehearse some of the material that we've covered thus far. Just Maybe you were like, hey, you said this, and then you said it again, and now you're saying it again. But uh, repetition helps us instill information. So, so we began the, the first couple of weeks with kind of an introduction with the, the what and the, the who, kind of the how, uh, in the, the manner of apologetics. And simply understanding that apologetics is really just being able to communicate to others why we have the hope within us. And then we, we looked at the manner in which we do that. And scripture over and over again emphasizes that when we interact and engage with others, uh, we are to do that in a, in a manner that of gentleness, in a manner of respect, uh, that our lives should be permeated by good works. And then the last several weeks, we've looked at different arguments. We've looked at arguments like the cosmological argument. And, and so if we're engaging with a secular worldview, they need to give an account for the origins of the universe. But simply, where does matter come from? Why is there something rather than nothing? What is that, that first cause? Or as you know, Aristotle and, and Plato would talk about, an unmoved mover, uh, the uncaused first cause. Uh, but then also, we consider the teleological argument. And I wasn't here for that, so I just had to pray, play a video. So it wasn't exactly the content that I would have chosen, but they would need to give an account for not just the origins of the universe, but the precise ordering of the universe, the, the fine-tuning of the universe that, that's so incredibly, like, unimaginably specific in that it allows for life on Earth. Uh, it's just unthinkable what, what the numbers are to give an account for that. But also the origin of life. So, so you have the, the universe itself, but then you have the origins of life. How do you get from uh, inanimate matter to a living organism? And, and that is something that uh, is not answered in, in a secular worldview. And then also, you need to give an account for the complexity of life. Uh, so we observe that things break down in, in this world. Things trend from complexity to simplicity, and there's, they, they break down a single, and we, when we consider that, a single cell contains over 3 billion base pairs 
of genetic information. And those have to be ordered in a specific way in order to produce functionality. So is it more likely that this just mountain, uh, it is in three billion base pairs, uh, would be randomly assembled in a meaningful, functional order that helps an organism thrive? Or would it be more likely that it would be unuseful and dysfunctional? Uh, like, clearly, it's just, and these are just really breathtaking numbers uh, when we consider them. Uh, but even if you grant all of that, uh, you say, okay, I give you a universe. Uh, I, I grant you that life just leapt into existence of its own accord. I grant you that these incredibly complex systems that, that govern just our bodies, let alone everything else is happening in our universe, that all of this was just accidents of dumb luck. Now, let's, let's think about what that worldview means. So if you grant that, they still need to give an account for transcendent realities, meaning things like morality, an objective foundation for morality, unless they're willing to concede that you know rape and murder and genocide aren't actually evil, they're not actually bad or morally objectionable. Uh, it, they're only bad because there's social constructs that say they're bad. But, but there's nothing to actually define and evaluate moral actions. So also, if if you adopt that worldview, you have no foundation for morality, you have no foundation for, for meaning uh, of any purpose or significance to life or, or what we are here for. Um, and, and lastly, as we considered last week, rationality and logic. Uh, you know, are laws of logic something that are real and something that we can appeal to outside of our brains, chemical processes that are going in, happening in our brain and something that is equally binding on me and you and the person in China and the person in Africa. Uh, and if we, you know, went into outer space, would laws of logic still apply uh, with, with the same truths that, that govern truth <laughs> be applicable there? And we would say, yes, they would. All those things would still be true. And, and if you adopt a purely material and secular worldview, you don't have a foundation for any of that. So, so there's material uh, issues, and then there's immaterial issues, conceptual problems. So I would just summarize it this way, and maybe this might be helpful, but uh, as far as I'm concerned, uh, a secular worldview, and maybe this is how I might express the, the summary of this, a secular worldview fails to give a sufficient account for the universe, the ordering of the universe, the origins of life, and the diversity and complexity of that life that we find. Uh, but even if we grant all of that, it fails to provide a solid foundation for meaning, morality, and rationality. And I believe that when I look around at the world filled with incredible beauty and design, a world filled with meaning and morality, uh, a world filled by very obvious and evident uh, unchanging laws of nature and logic, I believe that the best way to account for all of these things, the best way to account for the world that we actually live in, is that there is an omnipotent God who created such an unfathomably expansive universe, a wise God who then ordered that universe and governs it according to his wisdom, a moral God who creates us in his image as image bearers with a sense of moral reasoning uh, and then gives us his law by which we are judged 
according to that law. And I believe that we've rejected that law, that we've each turned aside and gone our own ways. We failed to love God and failed to love our neighbor. And because of that, we rightly deserve the judgment of God and the condemnation of God. But I also believe that God is merciful. And in, instead of judging us like he rightly could have uh, and sentencing, uh, sentencing us to condemnation, in his mercy he sent his son to bear the wrath of sinners so that we might be forgiven and reconciled to him and restored to our relationship to him. And the same offer of forgiveness and life is offered to not only to those who call themselves Christians today, but, but to all who are willing to hear the gospel and believe in Christ and turn from their sin. Um, so, so that, in summary, I, I would say Christianity provides uh, the best explanation for the world that we live in, both the, the physical complexity that we see in the world, as, as well as the spiritual or transcendent realities that we all live by, like morality and meaning. The unbeliever lives as if their lives have significance and their actions matter. And I would say that's part of the reason why I'm a Christian. So there's a hopefully a short summary of a lot of the material that we've covered thus far. Now for the next several weeks, we're going to cover objections to Christianity. And the first one we're going to cover is objection about the exclusivity of Christianity. This is a very common objection to Christianity, certainly outside of the church. But you know, it's even a common objection within the church. I found some studies that are just staggering numbers. So according to, to one study, I think this might have been Pew Research, they said 65% of self-identifying born-again Christians agree with the statement, Muhammad, Buddha, and Jesus are all valid ways to God. And like, I wouldn't believe these numbers if it wasn't for the fact that they were pretty common and consistent throughout multiple studies. So uh, another one, Ligonier and Lifeway did an eight-year study uh, over from 2016 to, or six years, I guess, 2016 to 2022. And in the 2022 study, 56% of evangelicals agreed that God accepts worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. And it's like, this isn't even just like American general public. It's not even like Christendom, these are people who at least conceive of themselves in some ways as evangelicals, born-again believers in Jesus. And I was like, how is this, how is this even possible? So, uh, you know, whether or not those people are, you know, genu- like uh, attending church faithfully and, you know, read their Bibles or anything like that, uh, I would not be so confident. But at least they think of themselves in those categories. So at the beginning, I just want to brainstorm for a little bit. How might people express their objection to the exclusivity of Christianity? Uh, And just to be clear, by exclusivity, I simply mean that we believe that salvation comes only through Jesus Christ, and that to adhere to any other religion uh, does not result in a saving relationship with God, a genuine relationship with God, and leaves them outside of salvation, and they will be judged for their sin. So what are some of the ways that you know, someone might express their problem with the exclusivity of Christianity? 
arrogant. Good. Uh, yeah. So it's arrogant. It's arrogant to say that you have the truth and no one else does. How? What else might they say? Well, maybe this answers the question, but like what I hear a lot or heard a lot is, "Oh, I don't believe a loving God would be like this or be like that or mm-hmm. exclusive." Yeah. Um, so, so it might be leveled at us individually, like you're arrogant for believing that. Uh, it might be a charge that's directed towards God, like. God would not be loving if he didn't accept the worship of all people. What are some other things that they might say? Maybe the, I've done too much wrong to consider it. Or yeah, yeah, and, and that might be a, a different, I would say that that might topically be uh, in, a, in a different category. But yeah, p- people might not consider Christianity uh, because of their own personal history. A lot of people might just say, you know, religions are fundamentally, all religions are fundamentally the same. And they're superficially different. But the, the heart of it's all the same, you know. You know, let people be a good person. That's basically what all religions teach. So why, you know, what's the difference? I hear that. I believe in God. But, like, religion is a construct of man. Yeah. So, yeah, there's a big pushback against any form of organized or institutional aspects of, you know, religion and, and that basically there's a personal spirituality um, and that you can, you can approach God however you want to approach him and you're able to do that and that, yeah, religion and, and the structures are, are just man-made concepts that are not reflections of you know the truth i was gonna say like the hypocrisy of christians like that um perception that you know they, the conduct like they, they don't want to be like a christian because yeah. hypocrites and mm-hmm. yeah and they don't you know they don't agree with how they act and, yeah and yeah we'll, we'll talk about that a little more later so i maybe maybe you won't remember i thought they were gonna come down uh but what, what are some of the verses <laughs> that uh come to mind when we think about the exclusivity of Christianity. And it's okay if you just saw and you just tell me what you just saw. <laughs> no one comes to the Father except through me. Yeah, and, and what, what is that? I don't know. John, John, <laughs> John 14, 6. Yeah, good. John 14.6. Uh, uh, you, you know the substance. That's what matters. Uh, but So John 14.6. Any other ones? John 3.16. Yeah, yeah. That, that John three sixteen is certainly implicit there that the the way of salvation is through Christ. Did I cheat if I wrote it down? No, go for it. Yes, you did. Well, it's my it's my fault for my PowerPoint failures. So, uh, Steve, did you have one? Well, I was just thinking like on that day, many will knock and say, "Lord, Lord, we did these things," and you'll say, "I never knew you." Yeah, and so certainly Jesus positions himself as the one who gives the authoritative acceptance or rejection of every individual, uh, and he places himself at the center of that. But why, why don't we look up, someone Someone read Acts 4.12 for us, someone look that up, and uh, someone look up 1 John 5.11-12, and another person get 1 John 2.23. So I think Acts Probably John fourteen six and, and Acts four twelve are the two most common ones that we would hear often 
And then the, these ones in First John are equally forceful, but less common, I think, in our kind of our evangelical consciousness. You want us to read them? Yeah, yeah, read it out loud. I got, I got John fourteen six. Okay, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Okay. Jesus said to him, "I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me." So there is no one comes to the Father except through me. Acts, Acts four twelve. Does anybody have that? There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among which we must be saved. Yeah. And so a lot of other verses, there, there are implications that if salvation is by Jesus, and it's not by someone else. But, but these are explicit that uh, not only does salvation come through Jesus, but it's only by Jesus. I know, what about First John 5, 11 and 12? And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Good. And then 1 John 2.23. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Okay. So you see both of these, John sets up mutually exclusive categories. If you have the Son, you have life. If you don't have the Son, you don't have life. It's not just that Jesus is one way to have life, and then there's other ways that you could have life apart from Jesus, but that Jesus alone is the source and the means of life. And if you don't have Christ, you don't have life. If you don't have Christ, then if you don't have the Son, you don't have the Father. There's no one that has the Father who doesn't have the Son. And so often, especially in terms of, you know, if somebody was arguing about particularly Judaism or, or Islam, uh, these are very clear verses in First John, uh, where it's clear that you don't have Yahweh of the Old Testament if you don't have Christ, His Son. Uh, you've rejected. Yeah. I would also add. I don't know the address um, of even like the demons believe, right? Like even like Satan and, and the enemy knows that God exists, and they are not saved. Mm-hmm. So, like a simple belief that God is isn't the same as a belief in the salvation knowledge and relationship. Yeah, yeah, and that, I mean, that really brings the bar up even higher because somebody could believe even in Jesus in a non-saving way. Uh, they, they could have an affirmation of a, his historical existence and not have a saving relationship. So, I mean, that's even <laughs> raising the bar uh, to a higher level. Good, so I, I would just say, you know, we look at these verses, Jesus is very clear. The Bible is very clear. Uh, the reason that many professing Christians don't believe in the exclusivity of Christianity is not because the Bible is not clear. It's because people don't like what the Bible says. It contradicts our cultural values, and, and it puts them into a collision course with, with a lot of people. Or the, the, the other thing is that they simply have not engaged with the Bible basically at all. And they are just ignorant of what the Bible actually says about salvation and who Christ is and, and how we can approach God, uh, which but in our culture is certainly not beyond the realm of possibility that there would be lots of people who would identify as evangelical born-again Christians who don't know very basic things about uh, what the Bible teaches. Uh, now, I would say we have those verses as a foundation of clearly this is what Scripture teaches, but how would you respond if anyone's brave enough? Someone says, I believe all religions are equally valid. And I think it's really egotistical 
and ethnocentric to think that you're the only one with the truth. How would you respond to somebody? I'm not saying it's correct, but one way I've responded in the past is uh, I went to Hebrews 12, right? I think it's Hebrews 12, right? Faith mm-hmm. is certainty. Mm-hmm. That, like, it's not arrogance, it's not egocentricism. This mm-hmm. is faith. Like, this mm-hmm. is what faith is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. I would, I would ask them where their religion originated. Like, uh, Hinduism or, mm-hmm. or whatever, it's all man made religion. Yeah. yeah, and they would probably say, well, your religion is man made. Uh, I would ask, what, what's your objective of the religion? What, what, is the, what is the religion or belief system supposed to accomplish? Why, why do you choose? Why are you supporting that? Yeah. And then, how does that actually work? Yeah, and I, I think the the main people, the the main group, uh, and and it's really not even just a, a solidified group because, like we just saw in the, those studies, where you have sixty five percent of born again Christians saying that Buddha and Muhammad and Jesus are all valid ways to God. Clearly, there's a a cultural pluralism and relativism that has seeped into the church in a very definitive way. And, and so you, you have pluralism that is permeating all of, like, all of our religious camps in, in America. Um, and somebody might be a kind of committed, conscious pluralist, but most people aren't. It's something that's been more caught than taught. They just, truths have been instilled into them that, oh yeah, this is the way it works, without ever having been explicitly taught that, that's, you know, doctrinally taught that all religions are equal and, and valid and are, you know, ways to lead to God. So, so you're thinking about somebody who's, who's approaching you from that point of view of, you know, all, all religions are, are valid. Let's say it's, it's also breaking the laws of logic, too, because if, if all religions are valid, if Jesus says, I'm the only way, truth, and life, and somebody here says, well, no, Buddha is, or, you know, whatever, or my cow is, Hinduism, um, those both can't be true at the same time. Yeah. They're saying they're all valid. Yeah. So, uh, Steve, Steve's had his hand up here. Well, I just was curious. I've never used this. I've never done this. Mm-hmm. I've never had that come to me. But wouldn't it be appropriate to start asking them questions on what do they know about those different religions mm-hmm. and, and engage in that kind of conversation? It means that we have to be eligible as well, as far as... Yeah. You know, I have like a little tiny little knowledge of, of other things, but I'm, you know, I've heard it approach that way, but I try to need a lot more, but would that be an appropriate yeah. engagement? Like, yeah. well, well, why are they all the same? Yeah, so... And what do they all mean, and, and what is this one, this one, this one, or whatever? Yeah, yeah, and, and so we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit. There's a book, I don't know if I, I... I don't think I have it with me. I think I just emptied my backpack of all my books. But Greg Kugel, I think his last name is pronounced, he is a... Uh, a book called Tactics, and one of the things he emphasizes is just asking questions, and it takes you out of the, the position of, I need to have all the information and all the answers and, and all the arguments to, I can just, you, you're making an assertion right now that all religions are equally valid. Now, I'm just going to ask you to back up your claims. Why do you say that? On what basis can you make such assertions? And then you, you might eventually steer them in, in the path of that. Paul pointed out, well, well, actually, like, 
if they're making contradictory claims, aren't these mutually exclusive? <laughs> and, you know, pointing that out. But but you can just start with by saying, why do you think that? Um, and I think that that'd be a good general approach to just. We'll talk about this later, but asking questions and putting them in the place where they <laughs> they're making assertions, they need to support those. Yeah. I think she has. Yeah. Um, most of the time, when I've heard when they talk about like religion being all equal, is it goes back to like a works based belief system. Mm-hmm. Um, religion is the key that you have to like. So it doesn't matter what religion I'm using. Ultimately, it's they all mean and they all set out to make me a good person. And if I'm a good person, I can get to heaven. Yeah. And I think that's how the exclusivity comes back of Christianity doesn't require you to be a good person. Yeah. Like there is no good person, yeah. right? Like we love because he first loved us and it's a differentiation of being a good person. Yeah, so so that's where we're, we're going we're gonna to end up today. And just, no, no, no you're, you're good, you're good. I'm, I'm asking questions. It's better to have you guys engaging that the, the theological answer of, of why Christianity is exclusive is rooted in the gospel. And so it's really a great opportunity because uh, they're basically asking you, you know, what is, to frame it another way, a more, you know, good-hearted, well-in-good-faith question would be like, what, what's unique about Christianity? And it's like, well, I would love to tell you uh, why Christianity is unique compared to other religions. But I, I would also recommend if you and so some of the issues that I'm going to be addressing, I've been, there's a book by Keller called The Reason for God. There's also a book by Sproul. Oh man, I'm, I can't remember the, the title, but, but they, they address common objections. And so I'm uh, referencing that. And Keller concedes that religious exclusivity has been the source historically. There have been wars and there has been division. There has been strife that has been at the source of some of those things. And then he, he kind of goes through different ways that cultures have tried to deal with the divisiveness of religion. And so one of them, he says, is to outlaw religion. And then he goes through a lot of the communist regimes in the 20th century. Of course, communist China, the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia, the Soviet, Soviet Union. And all of these were you know explicitly atheist governments uh, that had a explicit purpose and intention. You know, Stalin had a five-year plan to uh, expunge religion from the land. However, very clearly, as history demonstrates, instead of creating a, a place of peace and prosperity, it resulted in more bloodshed than all the religious wars combined of all human history. There's a book called The Black Book of Communism, Crimes, Terror, Repression, and they argue that over 90 million people were killed by communist governments in the 20th century. So the statistics of victims include deaths through executions, man-made hunger, like Stalin actually there's fabricated famine essentially in Ukraine, which is interesting in light of the things going on today. But There's also the island mm-hmm. shoved everybody to in... Um, Siberia. Yeah, so. Uh, no food, just yeah, yeah. Executions, uh, man made hunger, famine, war, deportations, forced labor. And so, even if the number of 90 million is inflated, let, let's say it's only 70 million instead, uh, like this is still an unthinkable number. 
not happening in the cradles of Christianity, not happening even in Islam, but in an institutionalized atheism. Uh, and probably the, the place and time in history where this is the first time that this is given an opportunity to, like, let's see what institutionalized atheism does. And, and so just a historical argument, like, this does not hold water, that you're telling me that religion causes war and, and death and destruction. It's like, well, if you look at the 20th century, it's very clear that atheism, that, that if we just left aside all of our religious beliefs, there's no reason to think, based on the 20th century, that the world would be a better place. And that's not necessarily a positive argument for Christianity, but it's just saying that that's not a valid argument, so stop saying that. But Keller argues that outlawing Christianity or outlawing religion just in general isn't working. So globally, religious beliefs still outweigh far and wide are dominant in the world. And it's true that Christianity has been on the decline in the West in, in many ways, but it has been surging in lots of other places, in, in the South, in South America, in parts of Asia, in the Middle East, in Africa. In South Korea, this is amazing, they went from basically 1% at the beginning of the 20th century to 40% in, in South Korea in, in 100 years. Uh, like, just tremendous revival in South Korea. Uh, interesting facts. There's more Presbyterians in Ghana than U.S. and Scotland uh, combined. So, uh, anyways, it, it kind of seems peripheral, but we'll, we'll keep going. The, the other approach is to condemn religion. This is really what we encounter uh, in the West. Uh, like, we enjoy religious toleration, but the plan is really to stigmatize religious beliefs as uh, either it's foolish, it's just it could even be dangerous to believe those things, like you're radical, you're fundamental, and the connotations that come up with, with those kinds of words, and even immoral, you know, that it's, it's immoral to believe those kinds of things. So, yeah, the goal is to not merely say that you're factually wrong, and, and maybe that's not even the thrust of the argument at all. The weight isn't given to being factually wrong, but to being morally wrong. And I would say this is more common... Uh, on the the variety of issues that, that we face today right now. So R.C. Sproul also points out that unique to uh, America, like we have strong values of religious liberty and, and freedom uh, and, and toleration. Those are values that are shared by all. And we've come to equivocate having freedom and equality according to the law as having equal validity according to truth. And so, you know, we, as evangelical Christians, should uphold people's right to worship according to the dictates of their conscience. And we say, yes, we want you to have freedom to to worship according to your conscience. But that doesn't mean that I think you're right. And, And we have brought those two together. We're saying, because you have the freedom you must necessarily, therefore, say it's valid. And, and you must affirm me in, in that choice. But that's this is not the case. And we shouldn't conflate those two. So, okay, so the way that some more, these are more objections that come all religions, we already talked a little bit about this, all religions are equally valid and basically teach the same thing. So what is the problem with that? We've already talked about a little bit. Simply that, number one, it's just not true. Like this is, factually not true. This is what you guys were pointing out. Uh, We don't believe in the same thing about God. We don't believe the same thing about 
man's nature. We don't believe the same thing about salvation. We don't believe the same thing uh, about revelation and what is true. So, like, this is just factually not true. And a good way to point that out is simply to ask questions uh, and, and to highlight that these are very different. And usually people won't even know. You know, that, like, Buddhism doesn't believe in a personal God that relates to his creation. Like, these are worlds apart. Uh, But number two, uh, we could also say, do you actually believe that all religions are equal? If you have a religion that practices child sacrifice, would you say that that's equal to a religion that promotes the welfare and the development of, of children and uh, if you have a religion that, that teaches that it's okay to abuse women and that they're inferior, would you, would you say that that's equal with a religion that teaches that all people are created in the image of God and have dignity and value and worth? Like, all sorts of things like this. Uh, if you had a religion, and because there are religions like this, that teach that one race of people is superior to others and that those other people, group B, can be rightfully subjected and dominated and, and abused. Is that, is that equal with, with other? So do you actually believe that all religions are, are equally valid and equally true? Because they, they probably don't <laughs> if, if you just ask those kinds of questions. The last thing, and I think we'll be coming back to this a lot, is that saying that doctrine and your beliefs your particular beliefs about your God and your religion, saying that doctrine is unimportant is itself a doctrinal position. It is a religious stance. So my doctrine says that doctrine matters. So you saying that doctrine doesn't matter is a mutually exclusive claim that is contradictory to what I believe. So I believe something and now you're making an assertion that is in opposition to that claim. These cannot both be true. This is the issue with relativism, uh, that, that you just run into logical binds everywhere. So to say, for example, that all religions express a piece of the puzzle and is, is itself a, an assertion about religion and, and your worldview, that, that is unique and exclusive. So, does anybody know the elephant analogy? Is it anybody familiar with that? Does some of you want to try to articulate it? Yeah, it's like you got four different blind people who are feeling an elephant from a different part of the elephant. One might feel the tail, mm-hmm. or they might feel the ear, or the leg. Oh, it's a trunk. Well, the elephant isn't just a trunk. The elephant isn't just a tail. It's mm-hmm. not just a big ear. Yeah. So, so the idea is that the, the relativists often would express it, you know, it's blind people, and they're, they're touching the, the leg of the elephant, of, and they're imagining this is what God is like. Uh, God is the elephant in the analogy. And they say, oh, you know, God is like a, a tree, and it's really firm and solid, and it's round. Or they might t- touch the tusk and be like, oh, no, it, it's curved, and, and it's pointy on the top, and it's just very hard. And, and they're all kind of grasping at who God is, what God is like, and, and they, each part has a piece of the puzzle, but they don't see the whole reality. Extrapolating from samples. Yeah, so, so what's, what's the problem with that analogy from the position of 
the relativist. Well, what would we say? Like, why, why is that? There's even, I would say, a, an inherent contradiction in what they're trying to communicate with that analogy. Like, they're all right, but they're also all wrong. Yeah, so there's that. I, I just didn't ask the question very good. So I'm just going to tell, exp, try to express what I'm trying to get at. But, you know, by them painting that kind of picture, what they're really saying is that all other religions are groping in the darkness, in blindness. And they all are, have this myopic view of God. And who's the objective observer who sees all and knows all? It's them. So, so everyone else is subject to their limitations. And, but who is the, basically the divine observer who has objective truth? It's them. And so, as we'll see, they draw a circle around everyone else and say, you guys are all subject to relativity and you know, a partial understanding of the truth, but I am the enlightened, objective viewer who sees the whole truth as it really is. And so, which hypothetically they could be true, but what's the point? Is that they're, they're making the very error that they're accusing everyone else of making. And, and they're claiming moral high ground <laughs> on account of it. So, so they're saying, ah, oh, the problem with all you people is that you think you have the whole truth, but really you just have a part of the truth. And the, but the implication is, I know the whole truth. Uh, I, I know that there's a whole elephant, and while you guys are all confused about the trunk and the legs and the tusks and all these things. So it commits the, the very fault that it's trying to expose in exclusive worldviews. What about this? Uh, religious claims are culturally and historically conditioned. They're the same kind of error is in this is in this assertion. What would be that same error that, that they're making? That they have the answer. Yeah, they, they can see the whole picture where everybody else can. Mm-hmm. Like they are also culturally historically. Yeah, it's, it, exactly. Yeah. So, so if they're saying all views, <laughs> assertions about God and and ultimate reality. All of these are historically and culturally conditioned. So, you know, they can't really be true. Well, is that claim historically and culturally conditioned? Is that claim a product of Western pluralism uh, in a post-enlightenment world? Yeah, it, it is. So, if you're saying that my truth claim can't be true because it's historically and culturally conditioned, can your truth claim be true? because it is equally historically and culturally conditioned. And so this is the thing, that relativism always circles, draws a circle around everyone else and then places itself outside of it. And, and you just can simply point out that if everyone else's assertions and truth claims are relative, then so are yours. And so your very statement is rendered meaningless, meaningless uh, because... You know, it's a double-edged sword. So if, if you're going to invalidate everyone else's claims on the basis of that it's relative in some way, whether it's cultural or partial, um, then so is your assertion. So, yeah, so you, you might hear this. Maybe somebody might say it to you, or maybe you, you'd hear it and them say it to someone else. But, like, if you were born in Morocco, or if you were born in Iran, you wouldn't be a Christian. <laughs> and 
Perhaps that's true, but it, it has nothing to do with whether or not Christianity is true. Uh, and you could like, likewise retort, you know, and if you were born in Iran, you wouldn't be a pluralist. Uh, and that, that itself doesn't make their worldview false or incorrect. It, it's simply to say that there is a reality. Uh, Jordan, did you want to? Yeah, I was just going to ask. I, I feel like in my experience engaging with this, typically, like, when you point out that their view is equally relative, they'll say, yeah, you're right, but I'm not claiming to be exclusive. Like, mm-hmm. I'm on the same ground as the rest of you, but you're asserting your view is superior. I'm not. Yeah. But and that's where... Yeah, so... Um, I don't know if I'm skipping ahead. Yeah, no, 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 it's good. And uh, it's exactly what we're, where we're going. So, so we'll, we'll just... You know, go to the, this next one. It's wrong to assert your view is superior to towards others uh, to others. So you can only criticize a worldview or a religious opinion on the basis of another really religious stance, or, or at least we use the language of worldview. And so skeptics claim any exclusive claims to a superior knowledge, you know, about or Objective knowledge about who God is is arrogant and it's therefore false. But the reality is that the, that objection is making claims about God just as much as we are. They are saying that, that God is unknowable. So if, if, if you're saying, I know God, this is what he's like, and they're essentially saying that you can't, all religions are, are equal or all religions are on the same playing field, then they're making positive assertions about what can be known about God and, and how he is to be worshipped, or that God maybe is an impersonal force rather than a, a person who speaks and gives us revelation, uh, like in Scripture. And, and so I would just point out to them that regardless of what they say, they are in fact making distinct, mutually exclusive worldview claims over and above mine. And they're not... because. It, it, it can be highlighted simply this way, like, you know, ask that person, do you agree with my conviction that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him? And of course, they would say, no. And I'd say, do you think that your view is right and that my view is wrong? <laughs> they'd say, yes. So, like, Inevitably, you are making a truth claim and you think my truth claim is wrong. And that is no different than, than me saying, you know, I think Jesus is the Son of God and uh, Muslims think he's a prophet. Does that, I mean, I'm not, I don't think I'm expressing that the best way, but it's, it's inevitably exclusive. Uh, and, and they are bringing a worldview to the table with exclusive claims. And I think you just have to point that out. That there's no way to believe in a, a pluralist worldview w- without excluding exclusivistic claims. Uh, I think so. They're, being ex- they're, they're making exclusive claims and they're... they're um, like, um, accusing us of making exclusive claims. Yes. So let me try to let me let me yeah let me, let me try to say it this way: to be inclusive, 
you must exclude exclusive claims. And there's no way around that, which is no different than an exclusive position excluding inclusive positions. Um, no, ma- no matter what, you can't avoid excluding contrary positions. Uh, and that it, it's no different. The, the only question is what exclusive claims are right. Well, yeah, that's just your opinion, man. <laughs> yes, and, and that would be your opinion too. And so the question is whose opinion is right? And so we want to push people back to there is an objective truth and we are compelled to seek that truth rather than taking shelter under like, well, everybody's got an equally valid way. I think there's a difference in why we share our truth in the sense that, um, like, I don't know if it's a very polite analogy, but like if I came out of like a public bathroom and there wasn't any toilet paper left, like I would tell the person behind me like, hey, there's no toilet paper in there. Like, because I'm a nice person. <laughs> so the fact that like, I believe that there's a hell I would not be a nice, loving person if I didn't tell somebody that hell is a real possibility. Like, if I'm going to tell you, hey, there's no toilet paper, I'm also going to tell you that, like, this is the only way to get to heaven. And I think that that goes against the relativism and, like, that belief that, like, oh, we think we're better than you. Like, no, I just think that you're in for a real crappy situation. (laughs) And you do it the same conversation. Yeah. Yeah. No, really. Yeah. By the way, there's no toilet paper and there's actually a hell. (laughs) Yeah. I I was going to tack on. It was intended. I was going to say, because, you know, some guys, like, sat in a cave and came up with these ideas and then made a book about it. Um, that when you look at him, you can tell that this guy had, like, motives. Like, Mahan, he had motives, and you can see them in the writing, right? Uh, Buddha had had motives, he did. You know, you can see them in the writings and stuff. I'm claiming that something outside of all of this impels me to tell you about it. And it's not, I'm not, I have no authority within myself for mm-hmm. making these claims. I'm, these claims come from outside of me, you know? Um, yeah. And, and, uh, that's like the testimony of the ages on this stuff, mm-hmm. you know. Steve, did you want to talk? Well, this is not really the appropriate time, but so <laughs> you know, I, I don't like appropriate time. Um, <laughs> this kind of disengagement, like I've always struggled with um, surprise engagements. I guess, like to me, I, I I can't knock on people's doors, and I don't think that it has any use. Okay, I might be wrong obviously, but I think relationship is the basis Mm -hmm. to have these conversations. Because you can have this conversation, it seems like it wouldn't go anywhere. Mm -hmm. Right? Like, unless you have their ear on a regular basis. It just seems like what we're talking about, just you know, it's like Ray Comfort, I have an issue with Ray. Because like he gets a point. Then people walk away, and there's no discipleship. There's no continued mm. involvement. Yeah, and, and I'm not suggesting that these conversations are only happening in, in you know, random... Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so I, I would say it's one for our own, like, mental engagements that you hear these things, uh, and you need to be able to process people saying things. I mean, we're being bombarded by all, all religions are equally valid, you know, why are you so narrow-minded? Why, why are you so particular? Why don't you just love all people? 
how do we even deal with that in our own hearts? Uh, just exposing that, oh, you're, you're coming to me with a mutually exclusive assertion in the same way that I make exclusive assertions about who Jesus is. And we're, we're on the same playing field. And it's just a, uh, a lie to, they're, they're claiming moral high ground that they're the, they're the loving, inclusive ones who embrace all kinds of people. When it's like, mm, the, your worldview is just as uh, exclusive as mine. You just, we just have different exclusive claims. Well, I just wanted to say too, for you, Steve, I mean, I, I've had these conversations relationally. Like, this is my mom's belief system right here. So, like, these are conversations I've had with her. So, it, I mean, like, we don't only have to have these conversations in those door-to-door. We well, can have these in these relational settings, and they do happen. I was just imagining that. I'm like, how does that even, like... Yeah. I mean, for me, it was my mom who brought it up. Yeah. Like, she brought these claims to me, and it was a conversation that I then yeah. had to and then when take do you, part in. When do you decide it's just throwing girls before swine? Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, that'd that be a, you know... They have all different conversations. Yeah. Um, I, I want to close really quickly with... And asking uh, the theological question of why. So if somebody asks, why is God so narrow? Uh, why God, is God so particular about who he accepts and who doesn't? So, you know, we have the, the John 14, 6 and, and uh, Acts 4, 12, that it is exclusive. But, but then there's another question of why is it like that? And uh, the thing that I emphasize, at least in, in my preaching, is that it's not like an arbitrary, random condition that God sets upon humanity and like, well, if you pick the right club, then I'll accept you. But if you don't pick the right club, if you don't, you know, like affiliate yourself with the, the right, essentially, like political party, then you're not welcome by me. It's not an arbitrary decision that God said, well, I like Christianity and I don't like other religions. And I think that's how a lot of people think of it. Like you have all these religions and God just kind of being like, I'll take that one. And it's like, that, that's not what we're communicating. The reason that only Christianity makes one acceptable before God is because only Christianity makes a way for sinners to be forgiven and reconciled to God. All people, regardless of where they come from or what they believe, are sinners. That we have violated God's law, we are guilty before Him, and we deserve judgment. And the bare fact is that Muhammad didn't die for sin as a sinless savior. That Buddha didn't die for sin as a sinless savior. They didn't rise from the dead. And even if they had, they were sinful men, worthy of judgment themselves. But Jesus, as the one who is truly God, truly man, uh, is able to live the, the sinless, righteous life that we should have lived, and then die the death that we deserved to die, and took my punishment and the wrath that I rightfully deserve, so that I could be forgiven. And the bare fact is that no other religion offers that. No other religion offers a sinless Savior dying in the place of sinners. No other religion offers a risen Savior who's conquered sin and death. So it's not an arbitrary condition that God places upon humanity, that Christianity is the only religion that he'll accept. But there's a reality that we have sins, and we have condemnation that must be dealt with. And Jesus alone is the one who has dealt with our sin and condemnation so that we might be forgiven. And 
like Candace was saying, every other religion essentially is saying, just be good enough. Just be good enough and God will accept you. And the bare fact is that I'm not good enough. That I haven't measured up. I haven't done what's required of me. And I need a righteousness from someone else. So, depending on, on how that question is asked, like I was saying, it provides a great opportunity to just simply share what is unique about Christianity. Why the gospel saves sinners and as opposed to the you know, four noble truths and the eightfold path of suffering or the, the five pillars of Islam. Like, there are, it's not arbitrary. These are real objective differences in what we believe and, uh, and our hope is rooted in what we contend is the historical fact of who Christ is and what he's done uh, to make atonement for my sin. So, I would just say, bring, uh, bring it back to the gospel. Uh, and at the end of the day, that's what we're trusting, that, that the sheep will hear the voice of the shepherd. And so, at the end of the day, it's not going to be our arguments or anything like that that's going to be uh, definitive or decisive in compelling someone of, of the truth of Christianity, but it's going to be the fact that when you say, John fourteen six that Jesus is the way, the truth, and life, and no one comes to the Father except through him, that his sheep are going to hear the voice of their shepherd, and they're going to come. They're going to hear and believe by the work of the Spirit. So uh, I think there's a place for, you know, just pointing out that we're actually both making exclusive claims, and you want to knock out any of the pegs that they have that are going to hinder them from from hearing you talk about Jesus. But at the end of the day, it's the gospel alone that's going to be you know, effective in saving sinners. Uh, so let's pray. Father, we thank you that our hope is in the gospel and that the gospel is good news to us and it's good news that we can proclaim to the world. We pray that uh, you would make the, the communication or of the gospel as we bring it uh, to our neighbors, to our mother-in-law or whoever it might be, that, that you give us wisdom, that you give us grace and humility, but that you give us boldness as we communicate that. And Lord, that, that we would stand with a sense of confidence and boldness, that we'd not be ashamed of the gospel or the exclusive claims of the gospel, that, that it is through Christ alone that salvation comes because he alone has done what is required to save us. Uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah.